We are going to continue this morning in Revelation, and then next week uh, we've got Malcolm Duncan as a guest speaker. Uh, he's, he's a great speaker. He's, he's, um, you'll love him and enjoy him, uh, so don't miss that uh, next Sunday. And then the week after, we've got Christy Wimber speaking as a guest speaker. So we've got, we've got I don't want to cheer when I say this next sentence. <laughs> we've got two weeks off Revelation. <laughs> um, and then we're going to come in for the, for the home straight and uh, the, the heavenly celebrations. Uh, so um, we're doing well. So um, we're on Revelation chapter 15 and 16 this morning. And um, there's a few kind of general observations I want to make. We're, we're talking this morning, we've been on the last few weeks, we've been on the seven seals, the opening of the seven seals of the scroll that the Lamb of God could open and the, and the un, un, unveiling and the revealing of, of God's plan of salvation and, and judgment as these seals were opened. And, and then we, we had the seven trumpets, the, the alarm uh, bells of, of the judgment of God, and we thought about those. And this, this morning we're going to be looking at seven bowls of wrath, of, of the anger and the judgment of God that are poured out upon the earth by the angels of God in Revelation 15 and 16. And um, we're going to be thinking about, about that and what, what it means and what the judgment of God means and the justice of God means. But there's a couple of things I wanted to remind you of as, as we go into these couple of chapters. And the first is, is that the events of Revelation, as we are studying them, are not linear. They are not chronological. They are cycles of visions, and they are a recapitulation of, of the same kind of thing, but from a different perspective. There is vision after vision after vision. Then I saw, John says, and then I saw, and then I saw, and it's not necessarily a, a chronological outlining of what's going to happen, and so, well, that's happened now, and that's happened, so now we can work out how near we are to the end of time. But it is looking at things from a different angle or perspective. So this is the case with the, the seven, the three sevens, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and now the seven bowls of wrath. These three visions, they all repeat the fact of the judgment of God coming upon the earth from different angles, from different perspectives, ratcheting up the intensity and the call to repentance, to turn to God rather than face the judgment of God. And the seven seals, some commentators say that they're from, from different perspectives. So the seven seals, arguably, is from the perspective of, of the suffering church. And the seven trumpets is from the perspective of the world. And the seven bowls are from the perspective, this morning, of the throne of God. And there are lots of parallels between these cycles, which shows us that they're not necessarily one after the other after the other, but we go back and we look again at the judgment of God and, and recapitulate and re-emphasize and re, uh, what is happening. And so there are a lot of, there are a lot of um, parallels, for example, between the seven trumpets of God and the seven bowls of wrath that we read that the angels pour out upon the earth. In the first of those, cycle of seven, the trumpet and the bowl affects the earth. The second affects the sea. The third affects the rivers. The fourth affects the sun. The fifth 
depicts the, the, the pit or the throne of evil. The six has to do with the river Euphrates in both of these cycles of visions. So in, and in the first cycle of seven that we've looked at, the seven seals, one quarter of the earth is affected by this judgment. And then in the second cycle, one third of the earth is affected by this judgment of God. And finally, through these bowls of wrath that are poured out upon the earth by the angels of God, the whole of the earth is affected. There's a, a ratcheting up of the intensity of the judgment of God. So the first thing I want to remind you of really is that the events of the revelation are not linear, they are not chronological. And secondly, we have to remember the strong role of symbolism and pictures and numerology in the book of Revelation. I want to show you a, a cartoon, a political cartoon, if we can put that up on the, on the screen. This was in the Financial Times, and it's a picture, and, it, and the, 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 the caption uh, underneath this picture was, China is taking its ideological fight abroad. It was talking about China's influence on the, on the world. And this is how it was depicted by the picture of a, of a red dragon. The dragon is obviously a, a picture that many people uh, would equate to China, just as the bear is uh, equated often to Russia and so on. But what this does, this, this political cartoon, it takes a picture to depict a truth. It takes a symbol to show something. Thank you, and take that down. But <coughs> and so we have a lot of symbolism in Revelation that we must remind ourselves of. Last week, we were looking at a red dragon with a big tail sweeping stars out of the sky. We were looking at beasts rising up out of the land and the sea. We've looked at a lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. We've looked at earthquakes and thunder and lightning and, and jewels and rainbows and crystal seas. And <clears throat> but we have to remember the strong role of symbolism and numerology in Revelation. Uh, Daryl Johnson puts it like this. He says... The persons or the powers depicted in their wild costumes do not actually exist in their wild costumed forms, thank God. In Revelation 5, for example, Jesus is depicted as a lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. Does Jesus actually exist in this form? Will we actually encounter the Antichrist in the form of a dragon accompanied by two beasts? Thus, after reading Revelation 15 and 16, we're not to go looking for seven angels pouring out seven bowls of awful stuff. This is a symbolic presentation of the awful reality of judgment. Jesus gives it to John and then to us in this form because the imagery gets our attention. It goes beyond the intellect, through the emotions, into the imagination where the message in audiovisual form transforms us. So we've got a lot of very strong images these last few weeks. And we might struggle kind of to equate with some of it, or to relate with some of it. And the same goes for the numbers in, in Revelation, the numerology. And so we've got, last week we're looking at the number 666, the number of imperfection, the number of mankind. And the number of sevens that are found throughout Revelation, the sign of perfection and fullness and completion, and the twelves, and the 144,000, and the three and a half years, or the 42 months, or the 1260 days, which are all the same period of time, but depict a, a certain restricted time of suffering. Numbers are used throughout Revelation to depict spiritual realities 
and should not be taken literally. And so Eugene Peterson writes in his book, The Reverse Thunder, he says, the modern imagination, flattened by the tramping hobnail boots of fact and information, has difficulties with John's images. We are neither used to or comfortable with these complexities. We like ideas, especially our religious ideas, laid out neatly and in order. So the second thing I want to remind you of this morning as we look at these bowls of wrath is we have to remember the strong role of symbolism and numerology in Revelation. And then the third thing that I want to draw out of, of this passage this morning is, is that much of Revelation, as we've been finding out, is rooted in the Old Testament. There's so many images and so many references, over 500 references in Revelation to the Old Testament of the Bible. And these judgments of God that we're looking at this morning are pouring out of, of bowls of wrath upon the earth by angelic beings, are framed as an echo of the exodus of the people of God from Israel. And so, so much of the pictures and the images and the, the things that we're reading about in these last chapters, they all mirror the exodus of the people of Israel from Egypt and from slavery into the promised land of God. Evidently, John wants us to see what he's about to present us in light of what happened in Egypt. And so I want to just highlight a few of the things that are in these passages that take us back to Egypt, take us back to the people of Israel. So this, first of all, the deliverance through the waters. When we come to Revelation 15, we hear the singing of those who have been delivered, singing the songs of Moses and of the Lamb. So we read in Revelation 15, at the start, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. And they held harps given them by God and sang the song of Moses the servant of God and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. We see... Here, the deliverance through the waters, the singing, the song of the people of God, the song after they crossed the Red Sea and saw the walls of water wash over the Egyptian army, as recorded in Exodus 15. But it is also here the song of the Lamb. And Nancy Guthrie says, the Israelites recognized that it was God's judgment against their enemies that provided their deliverance. And it moved them to sing a song that celebrated the Lord's triumph. And this is what we have in Revelation 15. The Lord's people standing on the far side of the persecution of the beast of the sea, singing a song that celebrates the Lord's triumph over their enemies. So if this parallel of the people of God delivered through the waters and singing a song of deliverance from the judgment of God and the judgment of God over their enemies. And then... As I read this passage, we see the parallels in the cry of God's people for justice and judgment. In Exodus, in the story of the people of Israel under Egyptian oppression, we read that the cries of the people 
for deliverance rose up to God. In Exodus 2.23, the Israelites groaned in their slavery and they cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And then in Revelation 6 verse 10, if you remember, the saints of God, the martyrs of God stood before the throne of God. How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. And so there is the cry of God's people for judgment and for justice in Egypt, but also in Revelation. And the judgment of God that comes as a result of the cry of God's people. But then you have the sending of judgment and the deliverance of God's people. God sent in his judgment and on Moses' intervention, he sent a series of plagues on Egypt that we read about in in Exodus that were intended to make God's glory known, his power and his majesty. They were intended, these plagues, to expose the false gods of Egypt and to call Pharaoh and the people of Egypt to repentance. The judgment of God that came plague after plague after plague upon the people of Egypt. But over and over we read Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He would not respond to God's judgment and to a chance to repent. And in Revelation 15 and 16, God hears the cries of those who are being persecuted and sends a series of plagues on their persecutors that are intended to make his glory known, that expose the false gods of the people of this earth and call people to repentance. And the hearts of those who carry the mark of the beast that we talked about last week are also hardened and they refuse to repent. And just as God sent plagues upon Pharaoh and his allies in order to liberate his people from bondage, so God's angels come with these bowls of wrath and pour them out upon the earth and upon the beast and upon his allies in order to liberate the world from their tyranny. And a number of the plagues that we read about in Revelation, they mirror the plagues of Egypt, the painful sores, the water turning to blood, the darkness, the frogs, the hail, they're all here in Revelation and they're similar to the plagues that fell on Egypt. And their purpose is similar, is to move the ungodly to repent and to liberate the faithful from oppressive powers. And there's another uh, parallel that we find between Revelation and the people of God and the church and throughout the church age and Exodus. And that's the image of being carried on eagles' wings. We mentioned this last week. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 4, the people say, you've seen, Moses said, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you, God says, on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. You saw how I delivered you. You saw my judgment. And then in Revelation 12, 14, we read last week again, the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. And then we have the parallel with Exodus and the people of Israel being freed from the judgment of God through the deliverance of the blood of the Lamb that we've thought about over these past weeks. On that same night, we read in the Bible, and God speaks, I will pass through Egypt. And I will strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. 
and the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And we read in Revelation constantly about the blood of the Lamb and the deliverance of the blood of Lamb. Revelation 5 verse 6, Then I saw a Lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. Revelation 7 verse 14, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes, and they have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Revelation 12 verse 11, They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And Paul reminds the Corinthian church, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And so the third thing that I want to draw out really is just all of these parallels that we see in Revelation from the exodus of the people of Israel out of this place of oppression through the judgment of God upon the enemies of God, through the waters of deliverance into the promised land. We see all of these references in Revelation again and again and again. The other thing that these passages tell us, these terrible passages as you read them of Revelation 16 and 15, the pouring out of God's wrath upon these on the earth, the judgment of God, the terrible plagues that come upon the earth, the call to repentance under the judgment of God. The thing that I want to say is this, is that God's wrath, his anger, his justice, his judgment, they are fair and they are real and they are righteous. But God wants all people to be saved. God does not want his wrath to fall on anyone. He wants all people to be saved. Sometimes we have difficulty with the wrath and the judgment of God. We prefer, and elements of the church prefer, just, let's just talk about the love of Jesus. Let's just talk about love and love wins. Why do, you know, that's the Old Testament stuff. We don't need to talk about judgment and anger and wrath and the wrath of God. And yet, we are also a people that want justice. Do you ever read in the paper of an injustice, of where justice is not being done? where justice is not being served, it rankles, it irritates you, it makes you angry? Have you ever felt injustice in your own life where we want those who sin against us to be punished? We want murderers to be put in jail. We want thieves to be caught. We want justice to be served. And for justice to be served, we need judgment. We need a judge Who's going to serve justice? And on earth, we have judges. We have judges that sit and that make judgments to serve the purpose of justice. And yet these are flawed human beings and sometimes there are great miscarriages of justice where someone is sent to death row and they didn't do the crime and it comes out later through DNA evidence that's uncovered or through some new evidence They weren't the perpetrator. They weren't guilty. And so we have injustice in our justice systems. And we have miscarriages of justice. But in God, we have a perfect judge. A righteous and a holy judge. 
We read in Psalm 89, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. We read in Psalm 7, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. And in the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, we have the declaration of the righteousness and the fairness of God's justice. He is the rock. His works are perfect. And all his ways are just. He is a faithful God who can do no wrong. Upright and just is he. And we read here in Revelation 15 and 16, as the judgment of God comes on the earth, as the angelic beings pour out these these balls of wrath upon the earth, we hear the declaration that this judgment, God, it's fair and it's deserved upon the earth and upon the people of the earth. The angelic, angelic beings cry out, Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways. King of the nations, who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy, and all nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And then I heard, John says, the angel in charge of the waters say, you are just in these judgments, O Holy One. You who are and who were, for they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard they all to respond, yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So I want to say that God's wrath and God's judgment and God's justice are real, and they are deserved, and they are true, and they are righteous. In Romans 1.18, we, we read the words, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And when the seals of judgment are opened in the book of the Revelation, the inhabitants of the earth, if you remember, cry out to the rocks and the mountains. They cry out these words. They say, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? There's a fear that comes on these people. That who can stand under the judgment, under the wrath of the Lamb of God. I remember the poem by William Blake from school about the lamb, little lamb, little lamb, (laughs) and, and how gentle this lamb is. But we hear here in the book of Revelation of the wrath of the Lamb of God. And yet, the other side of that, the other side of that judgment of God, which is real and is true and is coming upon the earth, And it's depicted after cycle, after cycle, after cycle in Revelation of the reality of God's judgment. Why can't we just read the Psalms? Why do we have to read all this stuff in Revelation? Why do we have to read all this stuff about the judgment of God? We can read nicer stuff in the Bible. But if we misunderstand this, or if we cut it out of the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's, there's no need for the mercy of God. There's no need for the forgiveness of God. There's no need for the cross. There's no need for any of it if it isn't for the justice and the judgment of a righteous God upon the earth. And yet, God does not want any to perish.
God wants all people to be saved. Above all, Peter says this in his letter. You must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come and scoffing and following their own evil desires. And they will say, where is this coming? He promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it did since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens came into being. The earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day, and the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will disappear with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. So God's judgment is real. His justice and judgment are fair and righteous, but God wants all people to be saved. And the other thing I want you to see from these passages in Revelation is that God does not want anyone to drink the cup of his wrath. He does not want anyone to have to drink these bowls of his wrath. And so he drank it himself. We have the imagery in Revelation that we've been looking at these last weeks of the grapes of wrath, a wine cup filled with the wrath of God. We had the trampling of the grapes and the rising of the blood of judgment to the height of a horse over all this distance, 200 kilometers. And we read in Revelation 19 verse 15, the King of kings and the Lord of lords treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. The cup of iniquity, the cup of sin is full. The grapes of wrath are ripe according to these pictures and these images. And God crushes them in awful and awesome judgment. And those who have rejected his grace feel the terror of his wrath and his judgment, which is fair and true and real. A cup filled with wine is the central image of Jeremiah 25, when the Lord says to his prophet, take from my hand this cup filled to the brim with my anger and make all the nations to whom I send you drink from it. Literally, the Hebrew of that passage speaks of this cup of the wine of my wrath. The image from Jeremiah helps us to grasp part of the mystery of Christ's sacrifice for us. Jesus chose to drink the cup of God's righteous anger 
thus taking the judgment, the right and the fair and the just judgment of a right and fair and just judge upon himself. We see the terrible scene of the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus sweats blood. And we read in Mark 14, they went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter and James and John along with him and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed. With sorrow to the point of death, he said to them, stay here and keep watch. And going a little farther, he fell to the ground and he prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And Jesus takes, as he goes to the cross, he takes the cup of the wrath of God and he drinks it. He takes the punishment of this judgment of God upon a world that does not want to repent. And the justice of God is poured out upon the cross. And Jesus says, God, Father, if there's another way, then let's take it. But not my will, but yours be done. He knows what, what lies ahead of him. And instead of the cup of wrath, he then takes another cup and he offers it to us instead. As he sits with his followers, he takes a cup and he gives thanks and he gives it to them and he says, drink from this cup, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus takes the cup of wrath, the bowls of wrath that are poured out upon the earth and he drinks it. And instead he offers us another way. He offers us forgiveness of sins through his sacrifice on the cross, through his blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. We do not have to live in the fear of God's judgment. Jesus bore the penalty for our sin so that we might live joyfully and freely and obediently in relationship with God. In perfect, infinite, unselfish love, God has laid the curse of his offended holiness on his own son who willingly bore it for us. He provided the sacrifice by which his holiness could be satisfied and his wrath avoided. The Apostle Paul explained it in his letter to the Romans in Romans 5, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Because the infinitely holy Son of God, 
died in our place and paid for our sins, we may be forgiven. We may be declared righteous. We may be made acceptable to God. We can be delivered from the awful wrath that has been stored up because of our sin. This is the essence of the gospel. Paul reminded the Thessalonians, it is Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. The wrath is coming, but it is Jesus who rescues us from it. There is no wrath for the child of God, only for those who reject his son. And so John says in John 3.36, whoever believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. We read in Revelation 16 about Armageddon, 16 to 21, and the end of the age. And then they gathered the kings together, the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake, and no earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed, and God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains could not be found, and from the sky huge hailstones of about 100 pounds each fell upon men and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. In Revelation 15 verse 1 we read, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them, the wrath of God is finished. As Daryl Johnson says, surely these are echoes of John 19.30, where from the cross we hear the words, it is finished. What is finished? Everything that needs to be done in order for unholy sinners to enter into relationship with the holy God. There is a way out of the wrath to come. It is to throw ourselves on the cross where wrath was mercifully expended by God on himself in the person of Jesus. The voice from the throne in the seventh bowl that cries out, it is done, is the same voice that cries out from the cross, it is finished. The one who sends forth the seven angels is the one who so loves the world that he gave us his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, should not come under judgment, but should have eternal life. The Bible tells us mercy triumphs over judgment. Which will you drink? Which will you drink? 
Will you drink from the cup or the bowl of God's wrath and judgment because you've hardened your heart towards the gospel and towards Jesus Christ which is, and his judgment and justice which is real and just and true? Or will you drink the cup of a new covenant? Will you drink from his blood which is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins? God has made a way for every one of us. We've asked the question over these last weeks as we've looked at Revelation and these terrible judgments which are painted in multiple colours to grab our imagination and our emotions, to get past our intellect sometimes, to paint these vivid pictures of the reality of heaven and hell and the justice and the judgment of God. But in all of this, we have a way that John is bringing us back again and again to the Lamb of God who was slain for the forgiveness of our sins. And all those who have had their robes washed in the Lamb get to stand before the throne of God. The answer to the question, who can stand, O God, under the judgment of God? No one can stand except through the blood of Jesus Christ. Which cup will you drink from? I'd like to pray for you this morning. I want to put a stark choice before you today because you are marked by one thing or the other. You're marked by the seal, the Lamb of God, or you're marked by the beast. You are either under the judgment of God or under the mercy of God. But you must choose to accept his forgiveness, his death on the cross for you. You must choose to soften your heart to him, to open your heart to Jesus Christ and to accept him as your saviour, as the one who died for you, to forgive you and to make a way for you into the presence of God. You must accept that gift by faith, by putting your trust in Jesus Christ. It is your choice and if you reject it, then you will come under the judgment of God and it will be a terrible judgment and you don't want to be there. So if that is you this morning and you've never ever committed your life to Christ, you've never ceded your life to his control, then I want to offer you this morning a different kind of cup that came through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And I want to lead you in a simple prayer where you're basically asking Jesus Christ into your life and your heart. You're thanking him for what he did. You're saying sorry for what you've done and what we've all done and you're accepting his gift of faith and forgiveness. And if that's you, whether you're watching online or you're here in the building, why don't you pray this prayer with me quietly in your heart as we pray. Line by line, I'll lead you, and you can pray with me. Pray something like this, just in your mind, in your heart. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you that you died on the cross for me. I am sorry for my sin and wrongdoing and rebellion. Please, will you come into my life and my heart? Please, will you forgive me and cleanse me and purify me and cover me 
please will you be my Lord and my Savior. I ask this today in the name of Jesus. And Father, I pray if anyone has prayed that prayer today, that God, you will mark them as yours, seal them as yours by pouring into their hearts right now the Holy Spirit and giving them the gift of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. I pray for that great gift to be given today, Lord, to those that seek you and those that call out to you that they will be saved. And for every one of us, God, who still relies upon our own righteousness or our own self-justice or self-righteousness or our own desire, God, for justice and judgment on others, we pray, Lord, we thank you that you have offered us a cup, the cup of a new covenant, a new relationship, a new agreement that was won by you on the cross as you drank of the cup of God's wrath and you offered us the cup of your blood which was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. Each one of us, those of us who are Christ followers, remind ourselves of this truth this morning. We thank you, God, that we are not under the judgment of God, but we are under your forgiveness and under the blood of the Lamb. We are marked with a seal, which is the Holy Spirit, which is a guarantee of the inheritance of what is ours on the second coming of Christ. We thank you for this hope, God, which purifies us and leads us forward. Lord, we thank you that you are a righteous and true and just judge. We thank you, God, that mercy has triumphed over judgment at the cross. And it is finished, and it is done. And you are a righteous and holy and loving God. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you did pray that prayer today, if you're online, we'd love you to email us contact at Plymouth Christian Centre. Let us know you prayed that prayer. We'd love to reach out to you and talk to you. If you're here in the building, you came with someone, talk to someone, talk to me and Dave or Paul on the door. Um, tell us that you prayed that prayer. We'd love to talk to you, give you some literature. And, um, and keep praying for those that are on the Alpha course because what we're dealing with here is life and death. This is the truth of the gospel. This is what we must proclaim. This is what we are called to, and we will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony and by not living, loving our life unto death. Let's stand together. I'm going to ask the band to come back.